what we're going to talk about tonight is the question, is Christianity racist? And some of you may be thinking, and, and I, I understand probably lots of Christians would, well, why, are, why do we need to talk about this? You know, I'm not racist. None of the Christians I know are racist. I don't see anything in the scriptures that would lead me to believe that anything about Christianity is racist. So why do we need to talk about it? And the simple answer is because there's a significant number of non-believers, irreligious people, including some of your own family, neighbors, co-workers, especially those who are younger, under 40 especially, who have uh, an idea in their minds that Christianity is a white Western racist faith. Now remember, when we started this, we talked about the image of the elephant and the rider. I've been referring to that often. I want to remind you what that is about. Uh, if you think about a, a normal-sized man sitting on top of an elephant, and he's got reins in his hand, but if that elephant doesn't want to go where the man says, the elephant's going where he wants to go, right? There's nothing that little man can do to stop him. That principle, according to Jonathan Haidt, this psychologist, is meant to illustrate our brains. We think that we make decisions based on reason, that we, we weigh all the options and we take the one that makes the most sense to us. But Haidt says, actually, the rational part of our brain when it comes to decision making is just the rider. Our intuition, our emotion, our, our, the things we feel, that's the elephant. And so when you're invested in a certain narrative, and remember I gave you the illustration, if somebody gave you definitive proof that your father was a thief, an embezzler, an adulterer, or something like that, you wouldn't believe it, no matter how much proof you saw, because you're committed to the narrative that your father is a good man. It would, be, it would take a whole lot to change your mind. Um, whereas if you saw the same evidence of some stranger, you'd say, oh, obviously, he's a crook, he's a bad person. So when it comes especially to issues of politics and religion, it is hard to get, convince people to change their minds because they've invested in a specific narrative that says these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, this is smart, this is not. So when I talk about how unbelievers, many unbelievers, especially younger unbelievers, think that Christianity is a white, western, and racist faith, there's, there's at least three reasons why they've bought into that narrative. Uh, one is, and I, I don't like saying these three things, I wish these things weren't so, but they are. And one is, there is a tradition of Christians in this country standing against racial equality. You know this if you're of a certain age and you grew up in this part of the world. You probably had uh, parents or grandparents that would talk about the days of segregation. Maybe you even remember the days of segregation and how many Christians defended that institution. And then uh, you go back even further, hundreds of years into the past, and there were Christians in this part of the world who defended slavery. You would not... It would not have been unusual to go to a church in this part of the world in that time period and hear pastors say from the pulpit that the Bible teaches that, that white folks are supposed to be on top and, and black people are meant for slavery. Um, now, I can testify that uh, some years ago, my dad, who was at the time the treasurer of the little church I grew up in, he said, Jeff, I was looking through the minutes, some old minutes, business meeting minutes of our church, and I found something that really disturbed me. He said, uh, back in the 60s, there was a business meeting, and they had a discussion on what to do if a black person came and visited this church. And a motion was made and seconded and passed that the, that person should be told to go to one of the black churches in town. And he said, you know, what really disturbed me is the man who made the motion was, and he named someone who was related to us, who was a very, very significant spiritual influence on me, who was dead by then, but 
didn't change the fact that that person was someone I loved and who did good things in my life. But what it showed me was that people can be sincere Christians and can be very, very wrong, as that, as that loved one of mine was. There's a second reason uh, that, that uh, unbelievers have this idea, and that is that there's a long, terrible tradition of Christian anti-Semitism. Um, I can give you one very glaring example, and that's Martin Luther. Now, I, Martin Luther, in my opinion, is one of the five most significant and important Christian figures in the history of the church after the apostles, and I have great admiration for him. But if you read his writings, after a certain age, he just started writing some of the worst things about the Jews. I mean, horrific things. I, I don't even want to describe the things he said. Uh, and I, I like to pass that off as well. He got old and maybe he got a little senile and maybe this was coming out. I don't know. But either way, the, the real tragedy of that isn't just the things he said. It's that a few hundred years later, when the Nazis came along, they were all too glad to say, well, look, Luther said these things, so you can be a Christian and be a Nazi. See, we're, we're just agreeing with your forefather. And that's just one of many examples we could give if we looked into it of, of times when uh, Christian leaders and, and churches either indirectly or directly did things that, get, that caused ter terrible harm to, to Jewish people. In fact, if you live in Israel today or in any, any heavily Jewish area and you are a, a, of, of Hebrew descent but you convert to Christianity, it's totally different than if you convert to some other religion. They... they they, they will treat you, they will say, you're not Jewish anymore. How could you go to that faith that, that harmed our people so terribly over so many years? So yes, there is that tradition. And then third, uh, another reason, this, these may not be the only reasons, but these are three reasons I know of for this perception, is that a lot of unbelievers see missionaries in a very different way than you and I do. And I remember when I first learned this, because growing up in a Baptist church like I did, missionaries were my heroes. They were, to me, the example of the ultimate Christians because they would leave behind a comfortable living in this world, in this country, and they'd go to places that were difficult and they'd share the gospel, very little pay, put their lives on the line. And then I, I got to know some unbelievers when I got to be an adult and found out they have a 180 degree different view of missionaries. Not all unbelievers do, but many do. And, and part of that was the narrative is that missionaries, Western missionaries, collaborated with foreign governments and corporations that exploited and enslaved people and destroyed those native cultures. For example, there are, and this is confirmed, there are stories even in this country among the Indians, the stories of, of Christians who would take children from their families and put them in missionary schools far away and cut their hair and give them uh, white Western clothing and make them speak English and just make them essentially leave behind their culture with the thinking, well, we're, we're giving them a better chance at life. Uh, but you and I can look at that and say, no, that's not the way things should be done. And, and so things like this have colored the perception of unbelievers towards Christianity. Um, now I could stand up and say, well, wait a second. I mean, yeah, you can, for every racist act you can point to in American Christianity, I can tell you that uh, slavery wouldn't have been stopped if not for the, the work of, of devout Christian abolitionists. And uh, Christian anti-Semitism, yes, but think about all the believers who have supported the state of Israel, all the, all the believers who have, who have reached out to Jewish people and, and shown them love. And then, and then in terms of missionaries, think about how many countries got literacy, got uh, modern medical care, got other advances 
because of the work of Christian missionaries. They didn't just go preaching the gospel. They made life better for millions of people. Uh, just one example that a lot of people don't know about, in India, before Christianity got there, before Western missionaries, I should say, got there, they still had a practice of burning widows on the funeral pyres of their husbands, their dead husbands. And so it was the work of Western missionaries that stopped that practice. And yet, again, elephant in the and the writer, if I were to say these things to the average unbeliever who thought the church is racist, they would say something like, well, it's good to know that there are some Christians that aren't racist. I wish there were more of them because they're committed to a narrative. And as we're going to see toward the end, you and I are too, but we'll talk about that later. So what can we say if we can't just hit them with stories and hit them with data? I think there's two things that are essential. When you talk to someone who is convinced that Christianity is racist, number one, I think you start by showing them the Bible is the most anti-racist document ever written. This is going to take me a while to walk through these, but I could go much, much longer. This is, a, this is a heavy theme in the Scriptures, and most Christians don't even know it, and I'll tell you why later on. But uh, what, I, what I want to say is, when I say it's the most anti-racist document ever written, not just because of what it says, but because it actually has a means to not just denounce prejudice, but to overcome it. In fact, the only means that really eternally works. So uh, you could start with the first chapter of Genesis when man was made in the image of God. It doesn't say that this kind of man was made in the image of God. It says man. Red, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in His sight. Remember us singing that song as children. I don't think a lot of us really internalize that. Um, I had a friend, uh, Robert Casares, who taught me to sing it red, brown, yellow, black, and white. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's the same thing. But really, I want to start with Genesis 12, 3, uh, the call of Abraham, in which God founded the Jewish people, and He said, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Yes, the Jewish people were the chosen people, but not chosen as in we are more important than all other people or we are more loved than all other people. The Jews were chosen by God to represent God to the world. The Jews were meant to show the world that they all were loved by Him. In fact, when you read the Law of Moses, there are many, many commands. I list two of them there in your notes that in which God says, hey, when you see foreigners, you treat them with kindness because you were foreigners in Egypt once too. And, and Isaiah, Isaiah 63 says, the whole purpose of the nation of Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. The job was, the, the, the call was, we will live in such a way that the world will see the glory of God and be drawn to Him and they will be saved through us. Jesus comes along, and Jesus comes into a, uh, an Israel that is expecting a Messiah. But what kind of Messiah are they expecting? They're expecting a Messiah that's going to defeat the Gentiles, a Messiah that's going to make the, their people dominant militarily and politically. And, and lest you think I'm, I'm criticizing the Jews, any other people group would have been the same way because we're sinful. Because part of our sin is we like people who look like us and think like us, and we, we prefer that to others. Uh, but Jesus came into this world, and He, preaching in Nazareth in the synagogue, the first time He ever preached there in Luke 4, He was fine. They were fine with Him saying He was the Messiah. They were fine with Him uh, quoting Isaiah 61 and how He had come to give sight to the blind and, and freedom to the captive and... And, and, and all that wonderful stuff. But then when he said, hey, remember, there's plenty of times when God gave his love to people outside the nation of Israel and not just inside. That's when they tried to kill him. 
That should tell you something. Jesus, many times in the Gospels, if you have eyes to see, you can see it. Many times he is poking holes in the prejudiced worldview of his disciples and everybody who's following him. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. We often think of that just in terms of helping somebody who's in need. But if Jesus were alive today and teaching that parable today, he would, if he was teaching in the Deep South, it would be a black man rescuing a white guy. If he was preaching in Israel today, it'd be an Israeli soldier injured and a Palestinian who rescued him. So Jesus intentionally chose the, the group that they hated the most to say, look, it's not about what your race is. It's about what you do. It's about how you live. Uh, Jesus often went to non-Jewish areas, Samaria, uh, the, the Gentile cities across the Sea of Galilee from Israel, and it made his disciples very uncomfortable. But he did it for a reason. He knew that after he was gone, their task was going to be to take the gospel to those areas and beyond, and he was preparing the way for that. Jesus even praised a Roman centurion's faith as greater than anything he'd seen in Israel. So not only was this a foreigner, this was, this was an officer in the army that was oppressing the people. And, and Jesus said, I don't care what his color is or what his language is. I, I care about his faith. That's what I'm looking for. And after Jesus was gone, the church really began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You remember what happened on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came for the first time to dwell in the hearts of people permanently. And the disciples and the others in the upper room went out and were able to speak in other tongues. They were able to speak in other languages. And people got saved who were in town for the Pentecost festival. They were Jews who were coming from all over the Mediterranean. And so there were people who were, who were by culture, Iranian, uh, Iraqi, Turkish, um, uh, Egyptian, Italian. So think about it. The first church that was ever established, that Jerusalem church that got its start on Pentecost, was a multicultural, multilingual church. It wasn't a church where everybody looked the same, where everybody listened to the same kind of music and drove the same kind of pickup truck. It was a church with, full of lots of people of all kinds of, of lifestyles. Uh, and we would say races, although they were at first all Jewish. In fact, in, in Acts 6, why did the first deacons get called in the first place? It was because there was a racial split in the church. There was an ethnic split. There were some who were Greek in culture, and there were some that were Hebrew in culture, and the, the deacons were called to make sure that those two groups got along, and one group didn't feel discriminated against by the other. In chapter 8 of Acts, we see Philip preaching in Samaria, which was a big deal. None of the apostles were there at first. It was Philip, a deacon, who went first. And it's this beautiful, transformative, uh, triumphant ministry. People are getting saved left and right, and God says to him, I want you to leave. Now, I know as a preacher, if people are getting saved left and right, that's the last time in the world I want to submit my resignation and yet that's what God told Philip to do. Why? To go stand in the middle of the desert and wait. Wait for what? For one guy in a chariot. A guy that didn't look at all like him. A guy from Ethiopia. And yet that man gets saved. And he takes the gospel with him. And today the Ethiopian church is one of the oldest in the world. Because God knew we got to get the gospel to Africa. And then in chapter 9, we see Saul of Tarsus, the most racially proud person you could ever possibly meet, and he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and as if it's not shocking enough to find out that the one he's been persecuting all this time is really the Son of God and the Messiah and the Savior of the world, he also finds out that it's God's will for him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. 
You can't make this stuff up, right? So Saul changes completely. And when you read his writings, you see over and over again, sometimes you have to look between the lines, often you don't, but over and over again you see that, that second only to his desire to see people come to Jesus was his desire to bring Jew and Gentile together. He, he talked about it over and over again. A couple of examples we know, all, all of us know Gen, uh, Galatians 3.28, for there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul would never have said that in his former life. That was the gospel that did that to him. But then this one is less well-known, but one of my favorites, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. For he himself, meaning Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, who's both Jew and Gentile. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may make, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What's he talking about when he talks about commandments and ordinances? He's talking about the law of Moses. He's saying God didn't intend for the law of Moses to separate people. But because we're sinners, we took what God intended for good and we used it for evil. And the law of Moses, which was a good thing, had come to be this, this wall separating one race of people from another and saying, we're good, they're evil. We deserve God, they don't. He said, Jesus came along and crushed all of that. He's brought us all together through the cross. Why? Because at the cross, everybody's the same. If you're a billionaire CEO or you're a guy on death row, it takes the same amount of grace to save you. If you're white, if you're black, if you're any color under the sun, it takes the same amount of grace to save you. And that brings us together. You're a sinner? Well, so am I. Well, we need the same Savior then. That's how the gospel brings an end to discrimination, to prejudice, to racism. And in fact, Paul goes on in that same chapter to say he's build, that God is building a tower. He's building a, a new temple, this tower out of living stones, and that's you and me. What Paul is saying, if you, if you have ears to hear, if you have eyes to see, is when the church shows the world that the gospel overcomes prejudice, then the world comes to Christ. Because the world can't do it. There's no political power. There's no manifesto that's ever been written. There's no movement that's ever accomplished it. But the gospel does it. So when the church actually faithfully lives out the gospel, that's the cure. That's the solution. Then in chapter 10, uh, God doesn't stop with Paul. He brings in Peter too. Remember, gives Peter that vision that convinces him that uh, he can go and preach the gospel to a room full of Gentiles in the city of Caesarea. And in Acts 10, 34-35, he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Well, in our English Bibles it says, Truly I understand, but in the Greek... It's a much stronger term. It's, I was blown away. I was dumbstruck. I couldn't believe it, but now I understand that God even saves people who aren't Jewish. So, you can, you can tell your friend all of that, some of that, most of that, and then you can say, so when Christians act in racist ways, say racist things, it's specifically a case of them not practicing their faith. It's not the flaw of their faith. It's not the flaw of their God. It's the flaw of them being sinners, of us being sinners. Don't get angry. Don't get defensive. Acknowledge the truth. 
These things have happened because we failed Christ in so many ways, and that's one of them. The second thing you can say is more than any other religion in the world, Christianity has reached people of every ethnic group. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Every other major world religion is, you can kind of pinpoint on a map where it's located. When you think about Judaism, you think about the, the state of Israel. You think about the ethnic Jewish people. Uh, when you think about Buddhism, it's Asia. When you think about Hinduism, it's India, Nepal, even Islam. Islam has, has outposts in Africa and Asia, but it's pretty concentrated in the Middle East. But Christianity is not bound by any borders. It started in the Middle East, it spread to Europe, and then to the Americas. Now it's growing in other places. I, I want to give you some stories. I've, I've listed this in your notes, but I want to give you some detail. So Africa, uh, a lot of folks don't realize this, many of the significant leaders in the early centuries of the church were African leaders, African Christians. You ever heard of St. Augustine? He was an African. A lot of folks don't realize that. Uh, but it's the growth of the church in Africa is like nothing the world's ever seen. Uh, some estimates say that by 2050 it could be home to... 40% of the Christians on earth, which is amazing. In China, uh, some of you remember hearing when, when the communists took over that country. Well, that's the end of Christianity. They threw out all the missionaries. There's going to be no more Chinese Christianity. Actually, the opposite happened. Uh, the gospel had struggled to take root there for centuries, and now the church there is growing so fast in spite of severe government opposition that by the end of the decade, everyone's pretty sure there will be more Chinese Christians than American Christians. And by mid-century, if the current trends hold, China could be a majority Christian nation. Think about that. Think about how that would change world politics for good. In the Middle East, of course, uh, the church started in the Middle East, but it's been dominated by Islam for several centuries. But uh, it's, the church is growing again in the Middle East, especially in Iran. This, this, needs to be, this story needs to be told, especially in light of the things that are going on in Iran right now. And, uh, but in 1979, there were about 500 Christians of Muslim background in Iran. 500 in a nation of millions. And then you remember 1979 is when the Ayatollah took over. And this has been uh, you know, fundamentalist Islam dominant for 40 years since. And yet today there's hundreds of thousands of Iranian believers and most observers think the Iranian church is the fastest growing national church in the world. That's amazing. And that's exciting. And even here in America, this idea that Christianity is a white man's religion doesn't make any sense when you look at the actual facts. So Stephen Carter, I, I've, I've given you a long quote and I'll read it to you also from Stephen Carter. He's a Yale Law Center professor, law school professor. He's also a black Christian. He wrote an article four years ago um, that I just love. And he says, the secular left has this weird preoccupation with denying Christianity's true demographics. So here's what he says. He says, when you mock Christians, you're not mocking who you think you are. So again, picture he's writing to secular liberals when he writes these words. Those are his intended audience. He says, overall, people of color are more likely than whites to be Christians and pretty devout Christians at that. Some 83% of all black Christians are absolutely certain that God exists. No other group comes close to this figure. Black Christians are far more likely than white Christians, 84% to 64%, to describe religion as very important in their lives. 
Of all ethnic groups, black Christians are the most likely to attend services, pray frequently, and read the Bible regularly. They're also, here's the kicker, most likely to believe that their faith is the place to look for answers to questions about right and wrong. And they are, by large margins, the, one, the most likely to believe that the Bible is the literally inerrant Word of God. In short, if you find Christian traditionalism creepy, it's black people you're talking about. It's true that politically black Americans are overwhelmingly Democrats, and that's true of black Christians as well. On the other hand, black Christians tend to be socially conservative, the least tolerant of homosexuality, the most likely to oppose same-sex marriage, and the least likely to believe in evolution. If you're maligning traditional Christianity, the people you're maligning are disproportionately black. The irony is that most of the American people who are, who are trying to tear down the church are white folks. He goes on to say that, uh, he goes on to point out that Christianity in America is growing fastest among immigrants, especially immigrants from Latin America and Asia. And so that means immigration may be making America less white, but it's not making it less Christian. It's making it more. And therefore, Christianity not only isn't a white religion, it's becoming less white in this country with every passing year. So is Christianity racist? No. I mean, that's, that fact is obvious. But... But the actions of Christians often convince unbelievers otherwise. So I, I, need to, I need to say some hard things to us right now. I know you love me. I hope you keep loving me after what I'm about to say, okay? Okay, so lately, the best way to get American evangelicals worked up, draw a crowd, get them to read your article or attend your sermon series, is to talk about critical race theory, social justice, wokeism, denouncing all those things. That's the main subject of a lot of political talk shows and articles online. That's uh, the key point of a lot of campaigns and then sermon series. And there's a couple of prominent preachers in this very area who've learned, I can, I can draw quite a crowd if I, if I do a whole series denouncing wokeism. I, I, it's interesting, I think, how things have changed on that front. I remember the 1990s uh, when Promise Keepers was the biggest men's movement anybody had ever seen. We were all, every man I know, every Christian man I know was going to big stadiums and listening to sermons and singing praise songs and making commitments to become better husbands and fathers and better men. And one of the pillars of Promise Keepers was racial reconciliation. And so you had black pastors talking to white guys and telling them, this is what it's like in my community. And, and there were all these steps. Here's how we can bring us together. And if that happened today, here's how things have changed. If that happened today, you'd have big evangelical churches saying, don't send your men to, to Promise Keepers. They're going to turn them woke if they go there. So... Do I understand the concern people have about this stuff? Does the secular left use racial identity politics to divide people instead of bringing them together? Do they try to force some wacky and dangerous ideas onto the public under the guise of social justice? Are there signs that critical race theory had some roots in Marxism? Do secular progressives have a tendency to rewrite the stories of history to make White people, always the bad guys. Yes, yes, yes to all of the above. Does that bother me? Absolutely. But even acknowledging all of that, we need to understand this idea that our prime enemy, our prime threat is wokeism, is I think doing us more harm than any liberal professor 
or any uh, media person or, or you know, social justice people walking down the streets of our cities. Our war on wokeism is hurting us for three reasons. And that's what I want to share with you. Again, not, saying, not trying to change the way you think or the way you vote. I'm just saying that's not our enemy. That's not our focus. It shouldn't be. Three reasons. Number one, it takes away from one of the few areas of common ground we can have with unbelievers. Let's face it, there's just not many sins that we can agree on anymore. Not many sins that we universally denounce as a culture anymore. And yet, when you talk to unbelievers, especially 40 years and under, and you talk to them about things that make them angry, things that get them upset, that motivate them to action, it's always going to be issues of justice. It's always going to be issues of equality. That's what they're fired up about. And we should, as Christians, be able to say to those people, you care about inequality, you care about injustice, you care about racism, you know who cares even more? God does, because He made us all equal. Not only does God care about it, He has the one plan that'll fix it. And if you really care about those issues and you come to follow Christ, you will be fighting against inequality and injustice in a way that really works. We should be able to say those things. But unfortunately, because of this war on wokeism, we're more likely to dismiss them or to say, well, you're just, you're just one of those snowflakes. It keeps us from witnessing. Secondly, it obscures the truth of the gospel. I think I've already shown that, yeah, the primary message of Scripture is God is reconciling humans to Himself, but along the way, He's reconciling humans to one another. And when the gospel's faithfully preached, and when it is accepted as it's presented, it is the cure to discrimination and inequality. But today, increasingly, preachers won't talk about it. Why won't they talk about it? Because they're scared they're going to lose their jobs. They're scared that somebody's going to tell them, oh, you've gone woke. Oh, you've become one of those CRT people. You've become liberal. Well, no, I'm just I'm preaching the Bible. No, 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 no. A lot of preachers. And listen, I'm not criticizing the preachers. I understand. Listen, I, I can't do anything else for a living. I'm sure I could if I had to, but I don't want to. This is, other than my relationship with Christ and my family, this is the thing I love. So if you tell me, okay, if you talk about this, you can't do it anymore, well, it's going to be very tempting for me not to touch that issue. And a lot of preachers are choosing not to. And the result of that is there's a whole lot of Christians and non-Christians who believe the Bible has nothing to say on this issue. And therefore, what we're doing is we're essentially conceding the moral high ground on this issue to, to the secular, secular people. You know, we're saying, oh yeah, because of the Word of God, I believe that that every, every child in the womb is, is a, an actual life and we need to fight for the unborn. Because of God's Word, I believe that, that God has a plan for human sexuality and gender and I'm going to fight for the truth in that. And I believe that the family is important and I'm going to fight for the family. But when it comes to race, oh well, I'll let, the, I'll let the unbelievers talk about that. Why would we concede the moral high ground to people who don't know our, our Lord? And I know, I know anytime this comes up, there are those who want to say, yeah, but Jeff, I mean, let's face it. This has always existed. Every culture has their own prejudices. Every culture has their group they're looked down on. We're never going to fix it. Let's just preach the gospel and, and let it work itself out. And that's what we always say when there's something we don't want to deal with. But we don't say that about everything. If, uh, if 
the murder rate in Montgomery County triple next year, we wouldn't say, ah, let's just preach the gospel and let it take care of itself. No, we would want more cops in the streets. We would want uh, measures to, to bring down the crime rate. We'd preach the gospel, but we'd also do something about crime. Same thing with abortion. That's an issue that stirs a lot of us up, and, and rightly so. Uh, we don't just say, well, let's preach the gospel, and eventually you know, women won't, won't end the lives of their babies anymore. No, we preach the gospel, and we fight to preserve unborn life. In the same way, we can't forfeit a highly biblical issue like this just because it's politically a little inconvenient. And if we do, we're actually not preaching the whole gospel. And then third, this can keep us from focusing on bigger problems. If we think our primary threat is that liberalism is creeping into our churches because uh, somebody might, uh, might preach CRT, I can just testify, I've never heard anybody preach anything like that in any Southern Baptist pulpit or conference or seminary. But if we believe that, it, it keeps us from focusing on things that are even bigger. And I'll give you an example. So Christianity's always spread in part through making people's lives better. Romans came to believe in Jesus because they saw the love of Christians for them, for their real needs, how Christians took care of widows, took care of orphans, took care of the poor. That convinced people. And that's still the case today. When Christians go into a community and they make the community a better place to live, unbelievers say there's something to this. So, Again, like I said, this has been a, a primary issue in elections. So in the most recent election, we were voting on school board members. And I asked my daughter, because she's a, uh, a high school teacher, teaches Japanese and history at Oak Ridge High School. And she's a, a strong Christian, a member of this church. And I knew that some folks who were running for, city, for a school board, the main plank of their campaign was, you elect me, I'll stop CRT from, from taking over our schools. And I said, well... Kaylee, is, is CRT a problem in schools in Conroe? She said, Dad, we got a lot of problems. We got a lot of things that we need help with, a lot of ways that somebody in that position could make the lives, could make teachers able to do a better job, could equip us to really teach kids and, and make a difference. CRT is not one of them. That's nothing I have to ever deal with. And I, so I asked the question a different way. I said, is there ever a time when you feel pressure to teach history in a biased way, to fit an agenda, to say, okay, America's the bad guy, or, or white people did evil things, or uh, to, to change the narrative in a way that fits that story. And she said, no. In fact, it's sort of the opposite. The pressure we feel when we teach history is whenever we come to a unit that deals with race, so we're talking about slave, the slave trade or the civil rights movement. He said, me and my other history teachers we get nervous, because what if some kid goes home and tells their parents, this is what we talked about, and that parent goes to the school board and says, they're becoming woke. They're, they're trying to turn my kids into social justice warriors, and I might lose my job. So we, we're almost tempted to just skip all that stuff altogether. In other words, they're not able to do their job because of this hysteria. And, and I think about that, and it makes me sad, because I think... And I, my daughter's a believer, and I know there are other believers on that campus, but I know there's a lot of teachers that aren't. And the thought that the people who are making their lives the hardest are, are Christians like us, that makes me sad. That makes me think we're not going to reach them unless we change our tactics and our thoughts. Now, the good news is we know how the story ends. 
Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's one of my favorite passages because I get, I'm in that crowd. You're in that crowd if you're in Christ. We're going to be in that crowd someday. In a crowd, people with all, all colors, all nations, all languages, and we're all going to be unified around the thought, there's Jesus. He's our Lamb. He's the one who got us here. That's the day when all of this ends. And that, I don't say that to mean, well, it'll all be fine in the end, so we don't need to do anything. We don't have that attitude about sin. We don't say, well, you know, in heaven there won't be any sin, so we don't need to tell people not to sin. Of course not. In the same way with all other sins, we look at this vision of the way things are meant to be, and we say, that's how God wants us to live. So let's do all we can to make it as much like heaven now as we can. Why? Because that draws people in. Because again, the, the whole mission of God is the people of the world look and see what they can't see anywhere else in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the bride of Christ, the church. And when we do these things, we're fighting the good fight. Not getting rich, we're not getting powerful, but we're fighting the good fight and we're pleasing God. So let me pray for us. Lord God, we wish we lived in a world where sin didn't reign, but we don't live in that world. We will someday. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would take sin seriously, all sin, that we would hate it like you hate it, and that we would fight against it with the weapon of grace and the weapon of truth, Lord, with the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would be courageous, courageous enough to, to do what needs to be done, to say the truth, and Lord, to love those who are different than us. Lord, when it comes to people who are not believers, who have this idea of what Christianity is, help us to show them differently that they might come to know you as Lord and Savior, that your kingdom will come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.